Well, good morning, Redeemer. We've been in a series uh, looking at God's word to be encouraged uh, by the themes of perseverance and patience and peace. These three things that uh, we need uh, all the time, but desperately in these difficult days. And so this morning, uh, you're going to be encouraged through God's word, uh, through the preaching uh, by Kingsley Lai. And I want to introduce him to you. Um, I've got a, a bio here that he sent me. And I'm going to read it to you. And even the construction of this bio itself tells a little bit about the kind of guy that Kingsley is. And so here we go. Um, Kingsley was born and raised in Windsor, Ontario. His surname is pronounced Lai as in Lai and not Lay as in Lay. And he has a twin brother who's more awesome than him. And he has one older brother who's way cooler than him. And his latest hobby includes tending to his home plants, which are growing out of control and trying to pickle carrots and cabbage. He's engaged to a sweet girl named Hannah, and they're getting married in the middle of March. So congratulations to Kingsley on that. Kingsley is enrolled in Reformed Theological Seminary, where he is uh, earning his master's degree. And he works full time at Grace Toronto as one of their many pastoral interns. And that is Kingsley Lye. And uh, so we're excited to have him with us. The text that Kingsley will be preaching from, which he's asked me to read this morning, is from 1 Peter chapter 2, the first 12 verses. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is, that, which is what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, uh, KW Redeemer, for inviting me to join you here today for your Sunday service. I'm really excited to be able to preach uh, God's word to you today. And before we dive right into it, can we just pray for a moment and ask God for help together? Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for this opportunity. Uh, we, we thank you for this Sunday where we have uh, Zoom to help connect us and the technology that allows us to hear your word preached, uh, to read your word together, and to encourage one another as well in our faith and our journey with you. 
God, we pray right now in this time uh, that you would bless us in the hearing of your word, but also in the preaching of your word. And so I ask you, God, to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to perceive and understand. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts here be pleasing to you, oh God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if I were to ask you the question, who are you? How would you respond? Earlier, you heard a little bit about me, but if I were to ask you to tell me about yourself, what would you say? How would you respond to the question, who are you? Perhaps you'd start by sharing some fun fact about yourself. Maybe you like to pickle carrots and cabbage yourself. Maybe you tell me where you're from. Maybe you tell me about your hobbies. Maybe you tell me about your family, that you're a husband, a wife, a grandpa, a grandma. Some might talk about your job, while others might talk about the school that they're attending. Who are you? It's important to consider how you'd answer this question because our sense of identity is tightly bound to the things that we belong to or the things we like. Jennifer Wickham, a professional counselor, and Campbell Leeper, a professor of developmental psychology, put it best when they say, nearly every aspect of our lives is organized around something because these things sustain or make up our identity. But what happens when we lose access to the good things which sustain or make up our identity? What happens when the things we derive meaning and value in are frozen in the permafrost of time? What happens when we who are designed to flourish in community and relationships lose access to say our families, our friends, our communities, our workspaces, our colleagues? What happens when say a virus comes in and locks down your city and dislocates you from the things that make you, you? What happens then? Do we not understandably feel hopeless, aimless, lost, disoriented? What our present moment has revealed to us is that those, these things are good. These things cannot be the primary source of meaning in our lives. In fact, if we are to endure in life's hardships, we need something unshakable. We need something untouchable. We need someone untouchable. And faced with their own identity crisis, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 to 12 addresses a people who, like us, are deflated, who, like us, are disoriented, a people who, like us, are discouraged by their suffering, struggling to press on. And Peter tells them where to go. And today he tells us where to go. He tells us to go to God. Redefining who we are, Peter shows us that the gospel identity is our solid ground and untouchable hope when all else fails. And he'll show us this in two ways. Firstly, he's going to dive into the depths of our gospel identity. And then secondly, he's going to soar to the heights of our gospel calling. And, and these are the two things we're going to explore today. Firstly, the gospel, the depths of our gospel identity. And then secondly, the heights of our gospel calling. Firstly, the depths of our gospel identity. When faced with an identity crisis, it's interesting to see where Peter turns our attention to. When you read this passage, do you get the sense that Peter is telling people to look beside them to say their family or friends to their hobbies or to their jobs? No, he doesn't do that. Instead, he tells them to look up. Verse 4, as you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice the upward-looking direction of Peter's words. He tells us to come to him. Who, who is him? Him is the one who is seated at the right hand of God above. Him is the chosen one of God. Him is the precious one in his sight. Him is Jesus. The same Jesus who on the mountain of transfiguration in Matthew 17, Luke 9 or Mark 9, was declared by God before Peter to be the chosen one, to be the one in whom God was well pleased. Peter is saying to you, don't look beside you, but look up to him. And in looking up to him, see who you are. See that you are all firstly living stones. And this isn't just some, any typical stone, not some slab of stone or rock stuck in the mud. Though we might feel like our times and our, our life right now is stuck in on pause, Peter is saying, no, no, no. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you live. And there's life despite your present circumstances. There's vitality and flourishing that can happen in your hardship. And this life and vitality takes place in your being built up by God. Being built up by God into something untouchable, something unbreakable, something that cannot be shut down by any form of government, something that cannot be locked down by any virus. You are being built up into a spiritual house for God. Your gospel identity says that you are living stones being built up into a spiritual house for God. The, the picture Peter is drawing on here is what commentators call the temple motif. Uh, drawn from the Old Testament temple, the temple represented a place in which God, uh, God of the cosmos, the God of the universe, chose to make his dwelling place. The place where God would make his home. And what Peter is saying in this Old Testament passage is that you, the church, you are that new temple. You are the spiritual house in which God will make his home. Implication number one. If we are the spiritual house for God, and that means our real home, the houses you're sitting in, the places that you reside in right now, this isn't your real home. It's got to be somewhere else. Where, you might ask. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 tells us, Paul the Apostle writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Paul, home is in heaven. And this isn't heaven that most people in popular culture might think of. This isn't some far and distant land where there's cute little angels and diapers fluttering about. No. Paul sees heaven as the land that Jesus creates when he comes back. The land in which heaven meets earth. And the world we live in is renewed and restored. The age where there'll be no more crying, no more fears, no more tears, no more pain, and no more suffering. Just joy. In the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, joy in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. To help illustrate this, uh, I couldn't help but think of my mother. My, my mom has dual citizenship. She is both a citizen of Canada and Hong Kong. And she's recognized as a national by both countries. And I remember we were in Hong Kong in our childhood home once, and I asked her mom, how does it feel to be home? My mother looked at me and responded with something striking. 
She said, son, I might be home, but my true home is in another land. In this case, she was referring to Canada. Christians, our home is not like, it's, it's like we have dual citizenship. Our home is not now and here in this version of earth. Our true home is with Christ when he comes again and renews and redeems and restores everything. We have dual citizenship. And so this is our first implication. If you find yourself suffering and struggling with the waves of hopelessness, set your mind on this reality and this implication. Implication number two, Peter says, we, all of us are living stones, plural. He uses the word stones, not stone. And together, we are all together being built up into a spiritual house. In other words, each and every one of us are part of what will make up a spiritual house. And what this means is that we have a responsibility to build on one another and to build up one another. Is there someone in your community who's struggling? Someone who's feeling stuck? Someone who needs building up and can really benefit from a gracious touch from the living God? Maybe it's a struggling mom. I see a lot of moms in this video chat right now in this service. Maybe it's a frustrated dad. I see you dads here as well. Maybe it's an aimless retiree. Is it your pastor who's exhausted? Maybe it's a restless youth. When the scriptures say that God is building us up, how do you think he does that? He uses you. He uses me. He uses all of us. He uses us as a means of grace to the people around us. In other words, no one gets left behind. None of the stones are allowed to go missing. KW Redeemer, as I was talking to Pastor Paul this week, I don't know if you call him Pastor Paul, you just call him Paul, um, but as I was talking to your pastor this week, I, I couldn't help, or sorry, earlier this month, I couldn't help but notice the joy that he had on his face as he was telling me about the very socially uh, distanced bonfires and other creative opportunities he had uh, bent toward this, this vision of building one another up, this idea of building one another up. He told me about a handful of you who were faithfully showing up to men's groups and women's groups and youth groups, how for the youth you had worked really hard to plan out this socially distanced hike together. These things might seem trivial on the surface, but these things are opportunities to build up one another. And so I want to ask you again, who are the people in your community that need building up? Who are the people in the church that you are building on? As we dive deeper into our gospel identity, Peter also goes on to call us a holy priesthood. Verse 9, he uses the word royal priesthood. The purpose is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that last part a little bit more later. But pertaining to our vocational identity, Peter says that we are priests of God, holy, set apart, belonging exclusively to him. And this is drawing on an Old Testament image as well. The, the, the Old Testament imagery of priests, or the role of priests, uh, was, was to offer sacrifices of worship to God. Peter's saying our gospel vocation and identity is hinged on worship. We are called to be creatures of worship. And this is great news. This is great news because regardless of your circumstances, regardless of where you find yourself in, whether at work or at home, with work or without work, 
we can worship. We have purpose. Our lives have meaning. We have a role to play as creatures called to worship. And this is untouchable. And this is unshakable. I don't know everybody here in the room, and so I'm going to guess with the video, uh, with a Zoom call this big, uh, there's going to be skeptics in here. And so I want you to hear something, skeptics in the house. We all worship something. David Foster Wallace, a postmodern Pulitzer Prize winner, once wrote, in the day-to-day -day trenches of life, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we get to worship. He goes on to say the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing, he's not a Christian, to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Foster says, worship money and you'll never have enough. Worship your body and you'll always feel ugly. Worship your age and you'll die a thousand painful deaths before you die. We all worship. So the question is, what do you worship? What does your internal visceral response to the present circumstances reveal to you about who or what your functional God is? When you heard we had another lockdown happening, what was your response? What does it reveal about what you worship? Is it your family? Is it your friends? Recreational freedom? Maybe it's school work, fill in the blank. What God wants you to see here is that you were made for more than these things. They are good things, but you were made for more than these things. And it's sad we can't enjoy these things right now. And we should treasure these things while we still have them. But these things cannot be the sum of your being. Work cannot be the sum of who you are. Family cannot be the sum of who you are. Your freedoms or social freedoms or liberties cannot be the sum of who you are because these things will fail us. These things will fade as our present circumstances have revealed. And these things cannot be our God because only God can truly be our God. Peter reminds us that we are first living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Secondly, he reminds us that we are called to be priests who worship. So we keep moving on to verse nine, we'll see that Peter writes that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people for his own possession. Here, he's gonna tell us a third thing about our identity. As you probably noticed, Peter loves to quote Old Testament scripture and connect it to our gospel identity. He does that again here lasering in on our Old Testament, uh, lasering in on the Old Testament theme of God singling out Israel as his own possession, Peter goes on to observe that this applies to the church as well. When God talks about Israel here in the Old Testament, he's also talking to you who are in Christ through the gospel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Match up the language and see how they relate, okay? The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Do you see the common words here? Chosen, possession, people, a holy people. There's a lot of parallelism here. And Peter is saying, that's you. 
Embedded in verse 9 is the weight of Deuteronomy 7. And at this is the core of our gospel identity, that you are ultimately God's beloved possession. All the other titles you see here in verse 9, chosen race, holy nation, royal priesthood, all of this is to say one thing, that you are the immovable, untouchable, unchangeable, God's treasured possession. With a firm grasp of his hand, he says, you are mine, like a husband, to his wife and the wife, to her husband. You are mine for better, for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health till death do us part. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is my love for you. I am for you and not against you. I will be your rock and I will be your shield. Imagine what would happen if we really believed this truth. What would happen if we embrace this reality as our reality? Would we not be untouchable? Would our hope be not unshakable? Do you suffer from loneliness? The God of the universe says here, I am with you. Do you feel helpless and powerless? God is saying, I am for you. Are you anxious about your times, about your work, about your days and what life will be like? God says, I hold you in the palm of my hand. You are mine. I am yours, he says. This was the truth that sustained the suffering church in Peter's day. And this is the truth that can sustain us in our present day. Christians, they hold of that truth. Claim that truth. Believe that truth as yours. It's God's promise to you. Skeptics, do you feel alone today? Do you long for comfort in your sorrow, peace in your pain? See the hope that stands before you in Jesus Christ. In some, Peter has showed us that our gospel identity is our solid ground and untouchable hope when all else fails. He shows us this by firstly plummeting into the depths of our gospel identity. And secondly, what he's going to do now is he's going to show us by soaring to the heights of our gospel calling. That's our second point, the heights of our gospel calling. Called to be living stones and called to be holy and royal priests, called to be his choice nation and his treasured possession, Peter tells us why God has done these things. Verse 5 and verse 9, if you have your Bibles, he says here, so you may offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, and so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Uh, my translation is the NESB. I, I realize you're, you're probably reading off a different translation according to the slide here, um, but let me read that again. Verse 5 and 9, according to the NESB, so you may offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, and so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As I was perusing your church website, I, I couldn't help but notice that one of your core values, KW Redeemer, is solely the gloria in English, for the glory of God alone. And here in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter makes it clear that if we are God's possession, God's priest, or God's house, all that we are, and all that we do must glorify God. It must reflect the beauties of God, whether verbal or not. Our actions are meant to herald the supremacy of God himself. 
implications. This means we have to live a certain way. Like an ambassador representing a king or a palace reflecting the radiance of a queen. The way we live tells us and the people around us a lot about the value of the God we serve. We are called to live in a manner worthy of our gospel identity. And this is a high calling, so high that Peter in verse 12 actually has to say the same thing in a different way. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the non-believers honorable. Why? So that they might see your good deeds and they might glorify God on the day of visitation. You might wonder what the day of visitation is. The commentators believe that the day of visitation in this context refers to the time when God comes and meets with non-believers individually and personally. The day when he reveals himself personally to them and they come to faith and receive their new gospel identity. The point Peter is belaboring here is that how we live matters. How we live matters because the glory of God and the true hope of humanity is at stake. How then should we live? Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, abstain from, uh, from, abstain from the passions of your flesh, or in your translations, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Uh, in, in context, uh, the, the, the passions here or the, the, the sinful desires here of the flesh can be rendered uh, desires or uh, not just simple desires, but um, over desires over desires, desires that have become your functional God. What are the over desires of your flesh? Is it some sexual lust? Is it greed? Is it what we read in verse one, malice, envy, deceit, hypocrisy? What is it that your soul craves? Christians, we need to face this question head on because there's so much at stake here. And if you're investigating the Christian faith, I want you to appreciate how much time we're spending on this because we're trying to address something that most of you skeptics are right about. One of the big pushbacks we hear from skeptics is that we don't practice what we preach Christians. With our words, we say one thing, but with our actions, we say another. And I don't like to air the dirty laundry of the church, but we have to admit this. And it's out there. It's undeniable. Don't believe me? New York Times published an article on December 6, 2020. Hillsong Church's New York branch fired their megachurch pastor after a secret affair became public. In the Sorrowful Review, it is observed that Christians in North America are quote-unquote appearing to be more concerned about being cool and more like the world as opposed to living out their Christian principles. January 4th, 2021, CTV News published an article that says a once treasured and famous Canadian-American apologist was revealed to be at the center of a sexual misconduct scandal. One of the critics writes, this man was not the greatest apologist of his generation, but rather one of its greatest frauds. I have felt a sickening combination of revulsion and grief, they write. Most of us are not at the center of a scandal. But as you can see here, the world around us is watching. And how you, how you live your life matters. Skeptics, we hear your criticism. 
And we acknowledge and agree with you that this is not how we are called to walk. And we need to be called out on our failures. We want to thank you for that. But what I want to say also is that this doesn't mean you get to throw the baby out with the bathwater. A diamond doesn't cease to be a diamond just because it's fallen into the trash can. And Christians may fail and fall at times, but this doesn't invalidate the truth of God, that God is worthy of all your worship, and that God is beautiful. Christians, you might think at this time, it's hard. This is a high calling. And I hear you, and you're right. It is a high calling. And my encouragement to you in these moments is to look to God. Look to the living stone who went before you. Peter, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, starts with this. Come to him, and he directs our attention to God. And he says, come to him, and look to him who is the living stone. The one who was laid aside, and laid aside the glorious insignia of God, coming down in the form of man, and subject himself to the greatest of humiliation. He, this man, Jesus, lived the exile's life. And he lived as a sojourner of sojourners so that he might sympathize with us as our high priest, as the temple of the living God who was torn down so that you and I might be raised up. Living the life we could not live and dying the death we should have died, Jesus walked a path true to his gospel identity and the path that would lead to the breaking of the bonds that bound us to our over-desires. Rising from the dead, Jesus not only sympathizes with us, but also empowers us to say no, no to the over-desires of our flesh. Acting as our cornerstone, Jesus frees you to walk in him. He frees you to live through him. He frees you to identify with him. He frees you from the domain of darkness and invites you and has invited you into his marvelous light. And it's for this reason that the scriptures say the one who believes in him will not be disappointed. A more literal translation in the Greek, it uses two words, ooh, me. Go ahead, you can say it with me. Ooh, me. That Greek two words, those constructions means never disappointed. It's the ultimate promise. You will never be disappointed. The message of Christianity isn't look at me. I've got my whole life put together, but rather look at Jesus. How in me not having my life together, in me being far from perfect, God in his perfect kindness paves the way. He pays the penalty of my sin. And through that Jesus, the same Jesus who died for me, he is day by day transforming me into what I was created to be. A man, or, or for the women here, the women, for the children, the children whose lives measure up to our gospel calling. Specific applications, we're almost done. For those who are investigating the Christian faith, I want to ask you, do you want something untouchable? Do you want an untouchable hope, an unshakable ground to stand on when all else fails? Come to Jesus. Verse 4, come to him who is the living stone. Reject him no longer, please, says the scripture. Peter is begging you to come to him. Let this gospel identity be your new reality. Invite Jesus into your life today. Center your life on worshiping him alone. Remember that the promise was you will not, who we, never be disappointed. 
Come to him, skeptics. And for the Christians here, some specific applications for you, two of them. Regarding secret sin, firstly, if you have secret sin, it's time to come forward to Christ. The, the verse 4, come to him, again in the Greek, has embedded in it the force of come and keep coming. There's a continual action, a habitual action that is represented in the tense of the verb there. If there is secret sin in your life, it is time to own it and confess it. It is time to own it and confess it because there is grace and there is freedom to be found. Peter tells us that our gospel identity says you are no longer creatures of darkness, but of the light. So it's time to wage war against the sin. And it's time to get help. You might think that you've got this. I can handle this on my own. But if you have secret sin, I'm willing to bet that you've got several years of history that says you don't. And you can't handle it on your own. And so come to Christ. And keep coming to Christ. Confess your sin. And receive his grace. You can start, if you don't know how, talk to your pastor. Talk to your small group leader. Turn to God's word. Uh, verse 1 talks about how, uh, sorry, verse 2 talks about how the word of God is pure spiritual milk. It's food for your soul. The word will show you how you can come to Christ. The war isn't over. There's still a battle to be won. Come to Christ, Christians. And lastly, this is our final application, hope in him. Christians, hope in him. Your gospel identity tells you who you are, whose you are, and where you are going. The world, this world is not your home. Home is in a place untouchable. Hope is in a place unshakable. Hope is in the hands of someone unbeatable. And so, KW Redeemer, hope. Conclusion. Having plummeted the depths of our gospel identity and soared to the highest heights of our gospel calling, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 to 12, shows us that our gospel identity is our solid ground and untouchable hope when all else fails. Let's pray.